Well, good evening. It's good to see all of you. Welcome to our Bible study again, Zechariah, on Wednesday night as we get, meet together and, and uh, study God's Word. We're to chapter 8 tonight. We're going to look at the first 17 verses of chapter 8. We're glad that you're here. A new day for God's people is the theme of the book. And uh, it's been a good study so far, and we're a little more than halfway through it. So uh, we're going through chapter 14, and it totally changes next week, though. Chapter 9 through 14 is all futuristic, all what's going to happen in the future. Hasn't even happened yet. It's going to be in the millennium one day. So chapters 9 through 14 next Wednesday night, or the following Wednesday night after that, will be, uh, uh, will, uh, be a lot different uh, tenor, of, uh, and you'll see how it changes in chapter 9. We're in chapter 8 tonight. Let's have a word of prayer. Ask God's blessings upon our time together as we study. God, thank you tonight for your word and how your word is power. And Lord, how you spoke to your people through the prophet Zechariah. And you still even speak to us today as we read 2,000 years later, even more than 2,000 years later, what, what you said to your people and how it relates to us. Father, I, I thank you for the opportunity to, to teach your word, study your word with our people here at First Baptist and pray that God, whether they're here live, whether they're on, online, however they're joining us, that the presence of God and the Holy Spirit would be our teacher as we open up your book tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, it wouldn't be Wednesday night without beginning with a quiz, would it? You look really excited about our quiz tonight. So six questions instead of seven. The seventh question is a bonus. Doesn't count against your grade. So um, that's just a bonus question. So let's ask, her, ask the six questions, see how many of you get uh, covering what we've studied so far in Zechariah. Sometimes when you review these, it kind of things stick in there a little bit better. First question, how long were the Israelites in Babylon as captives? Don't answer out, just in your mind answer or jot it down. How long were the Israelites captives in Babylon? How many years? It's mentioned in the text. Question number two, when they got to return to their homeland, how many Israelite captives returned? Most of them stayed in Babylon. Millions stayed there, but a, a certain remnant, how many of the, them Israelites returned back to their homeland? Question number three, what sin did the Israelites learn in Babylon that God addressed with the vision of the woman in a basket? It's a particular sin that they developed in Babylon they carried back home with them. And through the vision of the woman in a basket said, you need to get rid of that. What was the sin? Question number four in chapter seven, two men came to ask the Israelite leaders a question. Where did the men come from? What was their hometown they came from, we're told? You're looking at me kind of confused tonight. I don't know if that means anything or not. Question number five, what was the issue the two men wanted to discuss? Two men came from this town to Jerusalem to the leaders. There was an issue they wanted to discuss and a question for them. What did it concern? And then question number six from last Wednesday night, what type of stone found in Israel did God say in chapter 7 that the Israelites' hearts became as hard as? What type of stone? Question number seven. This is a bonus question. What is the Hebrew word that we covered last week that is untranslatable into English, but it's used 248 times in the Old Testament? It's a key word, not only in the Bible, but in modern Hebrew. If you go to Israel, you hear the word a lot. 
And it's often translated in the Bible as loving kindness or mercy or goodness. What is the name of the Hebrew word? So it's a bonus question. I'm going to kind of get your grade here. So, All right, let's see what the answers are. Answer number one, how long were the Israelites in Babylon as captives? Seventy years, absolutely. When they got to return to their homeland, how many Israelite captives returned? 50,000, you're exactly right. I think I said 150,000 last week. It's 50,000 that returned. 50,000. What sin did they learn in Babylon got addressed with the vision of a woman in a basket? Materialism, that's exactly right. Things got too important to them. Materialism. And it even carried with them back to Israel. Question number four in chapter seven, two men came to ask the Israelite leaders a question. Where did the men come from? Bethel, exactly right, house of God. They came from Bethel, 10 miles away. And question number five, what was the issue the two men wanted to discuss? Fasting, absolutely. And then question number six, what type of stone found in Israel did God say in chapter seven, the Israelites' hearts became as hard as? Flint, the flint stones, there you go, absolutely. And then question number seven, the bonus, what is the Hebrew word? Untranslatable in English, used 248 times. Very, uh, even in modern Hebrew, it's a very important word, but it's often translated as loving kindness. But remember, hesed. That's exactly right, hesed. Sometimes you see it H-E-S-E-D, sometimes C-H-S-E-D, because in the Hebrew, the C-H is, is pronounced many times like the H. So, so hesed, H-E-S-E-D or C-H-S-E-D. Very good. All right, you, did you do good tonight? All right, good, yeah, for the most part. Very good. All righty. Well, let's look then at chapter 8 tonight, and here's just a quick overview to get us 8. 50,000 leaders returned to Jerusalem. Life was hard. They began trying to rebuild the land. It was ravaged. It was pillaged. No resources to rebuild. Life was desolate, but 50,000 of them gave it a shot. The other millions stayed in Babylon because life was easier there. Once they got there, very first thing they did, they reestablished the sacrificial system. They wanted to know their sins are forgiven. Folks, can you imagine 70 years and you don't know every night when you go to bed if your sins are forgiven or not? In fact, you don't think they are because God gave you the way to have your sins forgiven is to bring a sacrifice and there's no place to bring it to because you have no altar, you have no temple. And so you're thinking every night, my sins are not forgiven for 70 years. So the first thing they do when they get back is rebuild that sacrificial altar so you can bring a sacrifice again have your sins forgiven. And the second thing they did was to begin rebuilding the temple so they could meet God again. They didn't feel like you could meet God outside the temple. Now we know that. We, we know that God's everywhere. You don't have to be in here to meet God. But he commands us to come here. But they thought you had to have the temple there or God didn't meet with you. So imagine 70 years, sin's not forgiven and you can't meet with God. So the first thing they did, rebuild the altar and start rebuilding the temple. You got to give them credit. They wanted to get their spiritual life right first. Because you know if that were many of us and we went back to our homeland for the first time in 70 years, we'd still probably start trying to build our own homes. And our own businesses and get some crops going and take care of me and then I can take care of God. And to their credit, they started with getting their relationship with God right. So you got to give them credit for that. So they start rebuilding the temple, started for 18 years, got discouraged, or they started building, got discouraged and stopped, 
and they had been stopped for 18 years by the time Zechariah started his prophecy. They had two leaders there, if you remember. They had a high priest, and they had a builder. Joshua was the high priest. Zerubbabel was the builder. So you got a civic leader and a religious leader, and those were the two leaders. But after 18 years, the prophet Zechariah, God called him and says, I want you to go back and talk to the people, send them a prophecy from me, and I want you to tell them two things. Number one, get rebuilding again. You've been stopped for 18 years. Get back at it. And number two, your best days are ahead of you, not behind you. The glory days of Israel are all in the future, not in the past. Now, they thought it was in the past. It's lying in rubble. They're thinking our better days are behind us. Not the case. Better days are ahead. So, chapters 1 through 6 are these eight visions God gave Zechariah in one night to tell him these two things. Chapter 7 then, last week, was a call for justice and mercy because the people had already started to cheat one another again and mistreat one another. didn't take them long after getting back to start mistreating one another and cheating one another again. So chapter 7 is a plea to stop doing that and start living like the people of God again. Don't cheat one another and don't mistreat one another. Act like the people of God. So we get to chapter 8 tonight. Chapter 8 is the coming peace and prosperity of Israel once again. So in this chapter, it's a chapter of nothing but encouragement from God. Think about that. How encouraging would that be to you? You're gone in captivity for 70 years. You know the reason you went there is because of your own sinfulness. God tried to tell you, but because of your own sinfulness, it happened. And for 70 years, you don't think your sins are forgiven. You can't meet with God. You finally get back, but life is hard. For God then to speak to you and give you encouragement, say, hang in there. Your best days are coming. Whew. That would be of great encouragement, wouldn't it? So that is chapter 8 tonight where we're going to look at. God really encourages his people to let them know Israel, this land that looks ravaged now, one day is going to prosper again. So let's look at chapter 8. Now, if you look at your outline there, Israel is restored to God's favor is the main overall arching, uh, uh, I guess you might say, phrase tonight of the first 17 verses of chapter 8. But there are actually five divisions we're going to look at. So number one on your outline, verses 1 through 3, God will again dwell in Jerusalem. Listen to what he says, verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. And I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Let's look at what's happening. As I mentioned, chapter 8 begins a new section in the prophecy of Zechariah. And in chapter 8, there are two major messages from the Lord to his people. Verses 1 through 17, verses 18 to 23. We're only going to look at the first one tonight. Within these two major messages in chapter 8, there are ten minor messages. And each one of the minor messages begins with the phrase, thus says the Lord. 
So every one of those begins with that. Sometimes he calls himself the Lord of hosts. But it always begins with thus says the Lord. So God introduces himself in chapter 8 with this title, the Lord of hosts, declaring his majesty and his power. So immediately as Zechariah speaks this and he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, immediately it would have been attention getting. They would have thought, oh, let's listen. God Almighty is speaking. And then he gives 10 different messages or promises, but they all promise the same thing. God will flourish his people once again. Now, he says, verse 2, I am jealous for Zion. What's Zion? Anybody know? Jerusalem. So if you go to Jerusalem today, it's called Mount Zion. Actually, Mount Zion is a mountain just, just in a, like a suburb, but, but the entire city is known as Zion. So anytime you see Zion, it's Jerusalem. So he says, I am jealous for Jerusalem. Now, God had already told his people, all the way back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, I am a jealous God. Wait a minute, I didn't think we were supposed to be jealous. I thought being jealous is a sin. Well, the word that's translated our word jealousy is not the jealousy we know that's sinful. It's, it's, a, it, it's something that doesn't tolerate rivals, whether those rivals are real or imaginary. God will not tolerate anything in your life that's, that equals his importance to you. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes a lot of things become too important to us and almost equal in God's importance. Now, we know the right answer is, oh, nothing's more important than God. But the truth is, sometimes there are things that creep into our lives that become way more important. Family does sometimes. Kids do. Grandkids do. Jobs sometimes do. Hobbies sometimes do. And so, God is a jealous God, meaning I will, not, I will not share the throne of your life with anybody or anything. I just won't. It's not who I am. I am far and away greater in anything in your life, and I will not tolerate rivals of any kind. So he is zealous to protect his unique relationship with his people. He alone is their God. And he will share that with another. So he uses the word jealous. I am jealous for Jerusalem. With great jealousy, he says in verse 2. And I'm jealous for her with great wrath. So the very same wrath that brought judgment to Jerusalem whenever Nebuchadnezzar just leveled it. The very same jealousy now he's jealous to rebuild it. And to love her again. So. The word that's interesting there, the word, English word jealous is derives from our Latin word zealous. We get the word zeal from it. And so that may be a better concept is God is a zealous God. Because whenever you think of zeal, the word zeal literally means red in the face with emotion. You're passionate about something. So maybe our translation better, I am passionate for Zion and I am passionate for my people. And so he's burning with emotion. Remember, the land was burned and ravaged by the Babylonians, and they were only about halfway done getting it repaired again. 
but he's burning with emotion, passion, to see that city rebuilt and his people restored. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion. Now hold on a second. He hasn't returned yet. It hasn't happened. So what does he mean, I have returned past tense? Shouldn't he say, I will return to Jerusalem and dwell there again? No, he says, I have returned. This is what, in Hebrew, is what's called a prophetic perfect tense. And what that means is, you, it's a future action that has such certainty to it, you use the past tense to describe it. It would be like a team saying, oh, we, we've already won that game and they hadn't played the game yet. But they feel so certain they're going to win it. Oh, we've already won it. It's the same concept. God is looking at an action in the future. Hasn't happened yet, but it's so certain because God has said it. He uses past tense. I have already returned to Zion. I'm already there. Now, he wouldn't return with the, until his people got it rebuilt. But he's saying, I have returned there. And he says, once again, Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. Wow, she was called a harlot in Isaiah. Wow. Isaiah said Jerusalem's a harlot. And now he's calling her the faithful city. Things are changing. They've been not whatever they've been in the past. They're not going to be that future because God's going to take unholiness out of her and unfaithfulness out of her because he's going to dwell there. Folks, wherever God dwells, there's not unholiness and there's not unfaithfulness. If God's presence is there, transformation takes place. Let me say that again. Wherever God's presence is, transportation, transformation takes place. Whenever we embrace God's presence in our lives, it transforms us. I'm just going to be honest. That's why I have a problem with people who say they're a Christian and they live unholy, ungodly lives. Something's wrong. He hasn't transformed you. He hasn't. I mean, we can say, oh, I walked an aisle and that made me saved. Walking an aisle doesn't make you saved. I signed a card. I was baptized. I, I'm a believer. I'm living like the devil, but I'm a believer. Yeah, check into that. Because every time you see God's presence somewhere, whether it's a city or whether it's a person, presence is there, it changes unholiness, unfaithfulness leaves. So you see people living unholy, ungodly lives and saying, I've been transformed by the blood of Jesus. There's something wrong. When he's there, things change. Now look at number two, verses four through eight. The streets will be filled once again of Jerusalem. Look at verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again Sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it is, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be God, their God, in faithfulness and in righteousness. Now look at a couple of things about this passage. 
Notice in verse 4 and 5, he said that the streets of Jerusalem will be filled again. They're looking at it and they're going, it's not that way now. It used to be filled and then Nebuchadnezzar came in and Babylon took over and burned everything. Look at it now, it's just rubble and charred and we're about halfway done rebuilding the temple and there's only a few people here, just a remnant. Most of them are older. The young people stayed in Babylon and young families stayed in Babylon and children stayed in Babylon because it's a better life there. So we had mostly older people that came back and they're not filling the streets. Nobody's in the streets. And God says there's a day coming, Israel. The elderly and the children will feel secure in the streets again and this place will be bustling. By the way, that prophecy never came true in Zechariah's day. You go to Jerusalem today, you know what you see? Bustling streets and elderly and children and you see prophecy fulfilled. But he said one day the elderly and the children, they're going to be there. Why specifically those two groups? Well, Lamentations tells us, chapter 2, verse 21, that when Nebuchadnezzar came in, the two groups hardest hit were the elderly and the children. Those were the ones that were killed the most by the Babylonians. They took the young men and the young women back. Young women could bear children. Young men could work. So they took them back to Babylon to work. They just killed the kids and the older folks. So it was especially hard on them. So he tells them, Jerusalem will once again become a place of peace and joy and long life and tranquility and prosperity and security. This was a significant promise because God's telling them, your better days are ahead of you. This place is going to teem with people again, vitality and life again. Now, imagine you're one of the 50,000 remnant. You're an older person. You struggled 1,200 miles and came back. And you're looking at it, and you're going, boy, I don't see that happening anytime soon. But how much encouraging that would have been to you whenever God told you this place once again is going to prosper. Now, there are some theologians, and I'm not in this camp, but there are a few, there aren't many of them, there are a few that believe this is a description of the millennial age in, the, in, the, in, in times, and it may be. But they say because of that there will be no automobiles or vehicles in the millennial age because the children will be playing in the streets and the elder will be walking in the streets. So that means there can't be any cars. Well, I wouldn't go that far. But anyway, just to let you know, if you hear that, that theory is out there. But um, I don't think that's what this passage is telling us. I just think it's going to be significant once again. So verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it's marvelous in your sight, why won't it be marvelous in my sight? They're probably thinking, this, this is hard to believe, God. The city's lying halfway in ruins. The work has stopped, little progress. In fact, the walls of the city won't be completed for 60 more years after chapter 8. So the promise would be hard to believe. Busy, prosperous, bustling city. But if it wasn't too big in the eyes of the people, why would it be too hard for God to do? That's what he said he's going to do. Verse 7. And I will bring, the Lord of hosts says, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. Now, where would that be? Think about where were, where were God's people now? Well, 50,000 of them were back in 
Jerusalem. And you got several million back in Babylon. You got others that have been taken to Assyria before that. Remember the first captivity by the Assyrians? So you still got some Jews living up in Assyria, some, most of them not in Babylon. But if you remember, whenever Nebuchadnezzar invaded, some of them fled to Egypt. And some of them to Edom and Moab and Ammon. And so you've got them scattered. So verse 7, he's saying, I'm going to bring my people from the east and from the west, from every direction they're scattered, and I'm going to bring them back and resettle them. When did that happen? 1948, remember? Israel became a nation again. Come back and resettle. And even today when you go to Israel, you see all nationalities, especially Ethiopians from Isaiah's prophecy, coming back and resettling in the land of Israel. So a promise fulfilled right here. Future gathering Israel will be far more greater than those that left. And it's a spiritual gathering, not just a physical gathering. But look at verse 8. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Notice the last phrase. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. When did they hear that for the first time? The first covenant. That was the phrase that just, when they hear it, rings out to them of the very first promise God ever made to them. And that promise is all through the Old Testament. I will be their God. And they won't be my people. It's covenant terminology showing close intimate fellowship. They heard it in Genesis 17, Exodus 6, Exodus 29, Leviticus 11, Leviticus 22, Leviticus 25, 26, Numbers 15, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 29, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 37, 2 Corinthians 6, Revelation 21. You will be my people and I will be your God over and over and over and over and over. Whenever you hear the phrase certain, uh, we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, including these life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. What do you think of when you hear that? Preamble of the Constitution. Goes all the way back to the beginning of our nation, rights of people. That's exactly what they thought of when they heard, you will be my people, I will be your God. It was the beginning of their relationship with Him. So what's he saying in verse 8? Why does he use that phrase again? Over, why does he, why does he bring it up? The words of the original covenant between God and his people saying, your future, I've not left you. I'm here with you. You're still going to be my people. I'm still going to be your God. What we started all the way back at the beginning in Genesis, I have not changed. I've not forgotten you. Remember the people thought they'd, what does Zechariah's name mean? God remembers. They thought he had forgotten them. So here he is using the one phrase that's going to get their attention that takes them all the way back to the beginning. He will be our God. And we will be his people. So every time you see that phrase in Scripture, it's God reassuring his people, I've not forgotten you and I will always be there for you. Go to verses 9 to 13. Number three, God will not deal with Jerusalem as in former days. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, 
There was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the um, safety from the from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give its produce. The heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. Verse 13. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you. And you shall be a blessing. Fear not. Let your hands be strong. What's he saying? He said, I will not deal with Jerusalem as in the former days. I'm going to give you the strength. Let your hands be strong. I'm going to give you the strength to keep rebuilding, keep doing. You've lacked resources and you've faced opposition. But God is going to give you the strength to find, to, to, to do his work in the promise of the fulfillment he's given you. Verse 10, when the rebuilding began, there was a lot of, wasn't much money to work with. Whenever they got back, you remember they didn't have very many resources. Unemployment was severe, crops were failing, not much wages for the people. They were poor, not a lot to work with. And not even the animals were getting to earn their keep. Enemy nations were taunting them. There was no peace in the land. God's saying, that's how, that's how you arrived but that's not how it's going to stay because I'm once again going to be there with you and restore you. Verses 11 and 12, God would treat his people differently than he did in the past. In the past, yes, you sinned, and yes, I brought judgment, I brought punishment, but I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm restoring your fortunes. And you know, whenever you and I sin, there are consequences. There's punishment. But God doesn't leave us there. He, he restores us. And that's what's so great about our God is, yes, we all fail. And sometimes there are consequences to our failure. Sometimes punishment for our sins. The Bible makes it very clear. He, does, he punishes those he loves. And sometimes we are punished. But God restores us. He doesn't leave us there. He restores us and once again brings his power and peace within our lives. And he tells them, Peace is going to prevail in Jerusalem again. I know it's been a rough past, but peace is going to prevail. The fields are going to become productive. There will be a mo abundant moisture from the sky so the crops will grow. And the people are going to enjoy the fruit of these blessings again. So get back to work. Get back to rebuilding those walls and that temple and city. Because once again, I'm going to bless this place. Verse 13. Interesting verse. And as you've been a byword of cursing among the nations, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do you remember all the way back in Genesis 12, whenever God first called Abraham to be a nation? What did he tell Abraham? I'll bless you, and you will be a blessing. Those Jews have hung on to that. They believe even to this day when you visit Israel that they are a blessing to the world and they will be a greater blessing one day because of Abraham's, God's promise to Abraham. And here is that promise fulfilled again, saying, you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those that bless you. I'll curse those that curse you. That was the promise to Abraham. And here he tells them, you shall be 
a blessing. Has this happened? Not yet. How do we know that? Because the 12 tribes, he says here, are going to be a blessing, house of Judah and house of Israel. Notice that. Right now, in Zechariah's day, it's just the house of Judah's back. Israel's not back yet. In fact, Israel doesn't come back to the end, millennial period, the end of the world. So this hasn't been fulfilled yet because it's going to be 12 tribes that are a blessing, not two. So we know because of verse 13, this has not been fulfilled yet. But notice what he says last of verse 13. So I'll save you, you shall be a blessing. And in the last phrase, fear not. Let your hands be strong. All the way in the, in the history of Israel, they heard when it was time for a battle, they heard the words, fear not. The word's in there, it's the word yare in Hebrew, it's in there a lot. That's their battle cry. Joshua's going up and they're conquering lands taking possession of the promised land, and the battle cry is, fear not, God's with you. And so they heard that phrase, fear not. It's a battle cry all the way through. And now imagine you're an old Jew who's made it back from Babylon, and you've traveled 1,200 miles, and you're back, and you've been working there, and you're trying to get things going again, but you're at the end of your rope, and you've been quit for 18 years, and you're ready to quit. And God musters an old prophet to tell you, fear not. It musters within you that battle cry that you've heard for centuries that God's with you. So, well, I tell you what, in verse 13, when he gathers them and says, You'll be a blessing, Abraham, fear not. All those times in Joshua, that had to light the fire and the spirit of those old people back in Jerusalem again to start back rebuilding. Look at number four in your outline, verses 14 and 15. God will purpose to do good to Jerusalem. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I proposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. There it is again. Now look what he's saying. Just as your disobedience brought my judgment... Now, if you'll obey me, your, your obedience will bring my blessing. You've been disobedient in the past, brought judgment, but if you'll obey in the future, it will bring my blessing. He was faithful to bring judgment, just like he said he would, and he'll be faithful to do what he says he would do. So once again, he says, fear not. That battle cry that once again gets the, his people going. Then look at the last one, verses 16, 17, we'll close. Number five, therefore, here's what Israel is to do. These are the things you shall do. Speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So, it's interesting, for 15 verses, God tells them what he's going to do. How he's going to restore the fortunes. Jerusalem's going to be prosperous again. And after 15 verses of telling them that, he says, Now, 
Here's what you need to do. Not always God going to act. You need to act. Here are some things you need to do. Isn't it interesting? God always adds ethical obedience to our faith. It's not just enough to go to church, study his word, and learn about it. But whenever you leave out the doors, you need to treat people right. You need to be honest. You need to be just. It's not just about coming and learning. It's about going and doing and being as well. So there's always an ethical obedience as well. So he tells them, these are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. They hadn't been back very long. They were lying to each other. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true. They were already, already passing down false judgments and, and verdicts that were unfair to people to benefit them. Render judgments that make for peace. Don't devise evil in your hearts against one another. It, they, they just made it back. As hard as life was for them when they got back, they're already sitting around thinking how to get to one another. That doesn't make sense, does it? But they were. Doesn't make sense when we do it either, does it? Don't devise evil in your hearts, one another. Don't love false oaths. For all of these things, he says, I hate. You know, you don't really think of God as hating anything, do you? He's a God of love, right? That's what we hear anyway. He is a God of love. But there are things God hates. He lists seven of them in Proverbs that he hates. And every now and then you hear God telling us, these things I hate. So we need to remember, God just not only loves things, but there are things that he hates as well. He lists some more of them even here. Do those things Practice justice and promote peace in your communities. And the word for peace is shalom. You know the word, Hebrew word shalom. It doesn't just mean peace as we know it. Shalom is a deep abiding sense of not just things go well with you, but a deep abiding sense of just contentment in your life. So whenever a Jew looks at you and says shalom, they're not just saying a oh, peace, like the peace sign or hippie movement or whatever. It's more than that. It's a deep-seated, may things be well with you in your life. And that's why he says, do those things that make for shalom. Deep-seated feelings of just what is right and settled and content in your life. So, once again, we, uh, we hear what God says, and that's the first of the messages. Next week, verses 18 to 23 is the second part of the message, and then everything changes in chapter 9, we'll look at it in a couple of weeks away. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to, to see me after service or send me emails. Uh, we'll be glad to, uh, to answer those. Hope you have a great rest of the week. Again, I want to send out an email this afternoon. I don't know if you've got it or not yet, but be in prayer for our, our church uh, family. And as you know, Dan Jackman, our business administrator, passed away Monday night in his sleep. And uh, pray for Trina and the family, his daughter, his son, their family. And 
Uh, I know that many of you know Dan and been active in our church here for a while and became our business administrator about three years or so ago. But pray for that family, if you will, and don't know anything yet on the details of the service when it's going to be probably sometime next week. But uh, we'll talk more about, about that when we get there. But continue to pray for the family, if you will, and a great loss for us, not only in the office, but also in our church as well. Did a great job and just a very well-respected and loved man, but he gets to be with Jesus for Easter. So happy for him even though we grieve for ourselves. But keep that family in prayer if you would tonight as well. Let's pray together and we'll close. Father, once again, thank you for your word. And God, you're a, a God who keeps your word and a God of promises. And sometimes when the Israelites didn't deserve it, you still were there and gave them promises of prosperity and peace and hope. And Father, I just pray the same for us as a people of God, that we too would follow you and trust you and God, may there be things just in our church and just in our own lives that make for shalom, just a deep-centered contentment that God is in control and everything's okay. God, would you give us that? Even tonight, we thank you for what this season of year means. God, we just thank you for uh, the opportunity that you've given us to celebrate Passion Week. And God, I just pray that you would bless this time together and then the powerful resurrection as we gather on Sunday. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Don't forget tomorrow night, 6.30, right here in the worship center is our Monday Thursday service as we look at uh, the upcoming crucifixion of Jesus. We'll celebrate on Friday, and of course, we'll gather again on Easter Sunday for the celebration. So I hope you can come tomorrow night right here in the worship center at 6.30, the observance of the Lord's Supper. God bless you. I hope to see you then.